The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I do invite you to open your Bible to John 18, if you haven't done so already. This is our last Sunday in John chapter 18. I, I think all of you are aware by now that I'm just a little bit of a baseball fan. Um, I even I got my Brave socks on today even though we lost yesterday. These are my preaching socks. I don't know if y'all know this. I wear really weird socks on Sundays. They're my preaching. Y'all don't care. Whatever. Anyway, I'm a little bit of a baseball fan, and I know that many people find baseball boring. They think it's sort of a slow sport, whatever. You're all deluded. But just one aspect of the game that I love is, is the chess match that takes place between the pitcher and the batter. Uh, they're trying to anticipate each other's moves and what they're going to do. Hitting a baseball is one of the most difficult feats in all of sports. A 95-mile-an-hour fastball goes from a pitcher's hand to a catcher's mitt in 450 milliseconds. Don't ask me why I know that. That's important information that needed to be stored somewhere. But that's how fast it gets there. And aside from just the factor of speed, there are all sorts of different pitches that are designed to move in order to deceive the batter. And here's the thing, like your eye, the human eye, physically cannot actually keep up with the movement of a ball coming that fast and moving. Like your brain, in conjunction with your eyes, is only able to process certain frames. And what you see is actually a projection in your brain predicting where the ball is going to be. You don't actually see its entire flight path. So when a pitcher throws something like a slider, a batter's brain will tell him that the ball is going to be in one place when he swings, when in reality, it's in another spot. From a batter's perspective, it can literally almost look like the ball disappears. Like you see one thing with your eyes, but reality is something entirely different. Your eyes have deceived you. I think that this is the way we human beings live the majority of our lives. Our eyes deceive us. We see one thing, but true reality is something entirely different. The Apostle John has been highlighting this truth for us all throughout chapter 18 of his gospel. Throughout this chapter, he has been aiming to show us that our eyes are deceiving us, that what we're seeing unfold in the passage, there's a deeper reality. There's something else that's actually going on aside from the way that things appear. He aims to show us an unseen reality, true reality. He aims to show us what is truth. And we need to see what he's aiming to show us We need to see it because the unseen reality of John 18 should be shaping how we see reality in 2018. What he's showing us is really true, really deep, ultimate. That should be shaping us still today. So our question is, what is the unseen reality that John wants us to see? So that we won't be deceived by our eyes. This world, 
and all that's happening around us. It may look one way on the surface, but there is a deeper, true reality that should be the foundation of our lives. When all else feels like sinking sand around us, there should be this unseen reality, this foundation of truth that we stand on. What is the unseen reality that John wants us to see? Let's see it beginning in verse 28. It says, then they, these are the religious leaders who've had Jesus on trial, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, think like 6 a.m. early. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So remember where we are in the overarching narrative of John, especially here in chapter 18. Jesus has just been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he has been put on trial in front of the Jewish high priestly family. His disciples have either abandoned him or denied him. And these religious leaders have tried him through the night, and even through all their questioning, they haven't been able to find him guilty of anything. But still, they want him dead. And they want him dead because of who he claims to be. That's going to become explicit next week when we're in chapter 19. In chapter 19 and verse 7, they'll come right out and say it. They want him dead because he claims to be the Son of God. They they want him dead. And it's for that reason that they're headed to the headquarters of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Rome had been ruling the land of Israel for a while now, and Pilate was the Roman representative stationed there. He's actually stationed in Caesarea, but during feasts and festivals like Passover, he would come to Jerusalem because so many Jewish people came to that city center. So he's in Jerusalem. He's been stationed there as the Roman representative in order to keep the peace. One problem, Pilate's not very good at that. And he's not very good at that for a couple of reasons. We've got some extra information about Pilate throughout various sources in history other than just Scripture. And from everything that we can piece together, Pilate seems to have been brutal. Brutal primarily because he was politically inept. The guy just wasn't good at his job. And when you're not good at your job, you just force people to do what you want. He was was brutal and he was anti-Semitic. He hated the Jewish people. Like even if you read Luke 13 and verse 1, we're told about a time that Pilate had some Galilean Jews killed in the temple while they were worshiping. This man was was brutal and he was supposed to be here to keep the peace. Needless to say, Pilate did not like the Jews and they did not like him. So the question becomes... Why are they bringing Jesus to him? I mean, their law, the Jewish law, wouldn't even allow them to go into Pilate's headquarters if they wanted to continue participating in the Passover feast that they were celebrating. Jews couldn't go into any Gentile building period that had a roof on it, or they'd be considered ceremonially unclean. So, so why? why? If you don't like this guy and you can't even go into his headquarters, why would you go through all the trouble of bringing Jesus to him? We see the answer when we keep reading. Look at verses 29 to 31. So Pilate went outside. They can't come in, so he goes out. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil... 
would we not have delivered him over to you like we really got nothing? We're just kind of hoping you'll kill him. If you were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And there it is. They want the death penalty. And since roughly about 6 AD, they haven't been allowed, the Jewish people have not been allowed to carry out the death penalty. That right belonged to Rome and to Rome alone. Now, knowing that and knowing the facts, I challenge you, think through your Bible, think through your New Testament with me for just a minute. Think through the Gospel of John. Like The right to administer the death penalty may have belonged to Rome, But are there any other situations in the New Testament where we see the religious leaders disregard that rule and execute the death penalty anyway? John the Baptist was, that gets a little bit technical, but yes. Stephen in Acts 7, even if we go to our own gospel, if we just rewind back to John chapter 8, we've got the woman caught in the midst of adultery. And the religious leaders surround her and want to stone her to death. And, of course, it doesn't happen in that situation. But with Stephen, it does. With Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he testifies before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leadership. They all yell, scream, form a mob, take him out, throw him down, and stone him to to death. It was not outside the realm of possibilities for the religious leaders to execute somebody, mob style, by having them stoned. So why don't they do that here with Jesus? I mean, again, if you don't like Pilate and you're risking being ceremonial unclean just to go to his headquarters, why go through all this trouble? Why not just drag Jesus outside, throw rocks at him till he dies, and be done with it? I think, I think, verse 32 sheds the light we need on this situation. This, in other words, everything that's happening, that's unfolding, them bringing him to Pilate, them asking Pilate for the death penalty, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. If the Jews killed Jesus, the kind of death he would have died would have been by stoning. If the Romans killed Jesus, the kind of death he would die would be by crucifixion. I think this is why, at least part of the reason why, Caiaphas, Annas, the Sanhedrin, all the Jewish religious leadership, I think this is why they brought Jesus to Pilate. They want Jesus crucified. They want him crucified because that would be the ultimate way of disproving his claim to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Why why would it disprove that? Because they know their law, and they know their law really well. And they know that back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, God himself says in verse 23 that any criminal put to death and hung on a tree is cursed by God. If they could have Jesus crucified hung on a tree, in their minds it would prove that he was not the Son of God, but he was cursed by God. They didn't stone him because they didn't just want him dead. They wanted his claims destroyed. 
This is the will of, of the priests. This is the seen reality. But is this really what's going on? Or is there something deeper? Something unseen? Some, some greater reality? I think John wants us to see at least three unseen things. And here he's showing us the first one. Number one, see the unseen king. See the unseen king. John, all throughout this chapter, has been holding up Jesus as the king of kings. Throughout this night, he has shown us Jesus encountering people of power. And it just keeps escalating. First the soldiers in Gethsemane, then the priest, and now he's before Pilate, who is the representative of Rome, the, who rules the world. And as Jesus encounters people of more power and more power and more power, John just continually shows Jesus is more powerful. Jesus is more powerful. First it was the soldiers in Gethsemane who Jesus knocked to the ground by the power of his word alone. Then it was the priest who put him on trial, appearing powerful, but we saw Jesus is actually the true high priest who holds all power over all that's happening. Jesus wasn't really the one on trial. He put them on trial. And now, as Jesus is brought before Pilate, who represents the greatest power in the world, we've got Jews, we've got Gentiles, we've got Jesus against the world. As he's brought before Pilate, before Rome, John wants us to still see that Jesus is more powerful than all the powers of the world. No matter how things look on the surface, the unseen reality is that Jesus is king. I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere. It's in the text. It's in verse 32. The priests, they may want Jesus crucified. That, that may be their desire, but their desires aren't in charge of the kind of death that Jesus dies. Pilate may technically be with the one with authority, to have Jesus crucified, but his word is not authoritative over the kind of death that Jesus dies. No, look at verse 20, 32. This, all that's happening, was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Forget the priest's desires. It's the desire of the triune God that Christ go to the cross Forget Pilate's authoritative word. It's the authoritative word of Jesus that's being fulfilled here. Jesus is sovereign over the kind, even the kind, not just he's going to die, but the kind of death he is going to die. He's told us this. Back in John chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. Not soldiers, not priests, not Pilate. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And he's told us already how he will lay that life down by, lift, by being lifted up. John chapter 12 and verse 32 to 33, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Shades, see the unseen king. He's sovereign over all things. He's sovereign in John 18. And he is sovereign in your 2018. Like in your own 
life? Do you see the unseen king? There may be a million and one forces around you that appear more powerful. Don't don't let your eyes deceive you. Christ our king holds all power. No nation, no politician, no person in your life, no personal problem holds all power. I don't care what it looks like. Don't let your eyes deceive you. Christ our king holds all power. That truth is evident from the moment that he speaks creation into existence until he brings creation to consummation. It's evident all over Scripture. Psalm chapter 2 declares that the nations, they make their plots, they make their plans, but they are all in vain. Our God who sits in heaven laughs. Why does he laugh? Because Proverbs 21 and verse 1 is true, which declares that the heart of every king is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. It's funny that rulers think they rule. It makes God chuckle. One of my favorite scriptures where he proclaims his all-sweeping sovereign power is Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And in John 18, he is accomplishing all his purpose. He declared Christ to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's he's accomplishing that purpose. Even when it looks like Jesus is less powerful than the Jews, less powerful than the Romans, which is another way of saying less powerful than all the The world, when it looks like all the world is more powerful than Jesus, at that precise moment, he is ruling and reigning as king. That's still true right now in your life. Do you see it? Do you see him at the precise moment? moment when it looks like everything in your life and every power that surrounds you is more powerful than Jesus, at that moment, he is ruling and reigning. That's the unseen reality John is showing. That's the unseen king. Do you see him? John, John takes this even deeper, for he doesn't just want us to see the unseen king. No. Number two, John wants us to see the unseen kingdom. Second, see the unseen kingdom. Look at verses 33 to 35. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus. I have a private conversation with Jesus now. And he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation. And the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Are you the king of the Jews? This question is asked by Pilate in all four Gospels. It gives us evidence of how the Jewish leaders have tried to frame their charges against Jesus. They've had to frame their charges in a way that Pilate would be forced to care about it. So what they've done is they've made Jesus out to be some kind of political revolutionary, an insurrectionist out against Rome. He's claiming to be the king of the Jews. That's a threat against Rome. That's a threat against Caesar. That's a threat against their their power. Pilate, you've got to care about, you've got to do something about this. 
Pilate really doesn't care about it. His question, are you the king of the Jews, it, it comes off as sarcastic. The, the word you there is emphatic in the Greek. It's first. If I was going to literally translate it, it would be you. Are you the king of the Jews? A wandering rabbi dressed in common clothes who looks disheveled because he's been up all night sweating drops of blood and now he's been slapped around by some guards. He looks anything but like a king. You are, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate doesn't care. He's not a Jew. This guy is clearly no threat to him, political insurrectionist or not. He looks pitiful. What could he possibly have done to make these religious leaders want him dead? That's Pilate's question. What, what is it that you have done? Jesus replies, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Jesus is a king, and he does have a kingdom, but not at all like what he's been accused of. Not at all like what Pilate might think. Jesus says, my kingdom, it's not of this world. It doesn't look like the kingdoms of this world, Pilate. It doesn't look like the kingdoms of this world that are power-hungry and will use every force, whatever force necessary to establish their reign. It's not my kingdom. Pilate had probably even heard about how in the garden earlier, Jesus had actually made one of his servants, Peter, put away a sword. Wouldn't let him defend him with violent force. Jesus has a kingdom. It's not of this world. It's an unseen kingdom. And this is the very purpose for which he's come into the world as the unseen king. To make his kingship and his kingdom known you get that? It's the purpose for which he's here. To make his kingship and his kingdom known. Verse 37 again. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come to the world. To bear witness to the truth. To show you what's true. To show you who really is king and runs the world. Beyonce does not have it right. It's not girls. It's Jesus. If you don't get that joke, bless you. You don't need to get it. It's, it's fine. It's whatever. He bears witness to the truth that he is the king over all and that his kingdom is, is coming. He, Jesus basically says, I have come to tell you that no matter what things look like here, there is a true king over all. And no matter if it looks like other kingdoms of this world are winning through all their violent power, there is a kingdom coming in powerful peace. Christ has come that we might see that he is king over all and his kingdom of perfect peace 
is coming. He came to bear witness to that truth. Do you see the unseen king? Do you see the unseen kingdom? Pilate doesn't. Like his words, his question in verse 38, whether he speaks that out of sarcasm or despair, it doesn't matter. They're words of death either way. Christ has come to bear witness to the truth, to the way things really are, to who is really king and what is the real kingdom that will reign forever. And the only response that Pilate can muster is is a meager question. What is truth? Pilate doesn't wait for an answer. Maybe he thinks there's not one. Maybe he doesn't care. But for Pilate, the only truth he knows is what he can see. And right now, what he sees is that inside of his headquarters, he's got an innocent man. But outside, there is an angry mob of people that seem more powerful. And the only way for him to achieve peace is by pleasing them and killing him. That is the reality that Pilate sees, but his eyes are being deceived. The unseen reality is that Pilate is actually standing before the King of Kings, Jesus, and that this King of Kings is really the one who is going to achieve peace, not Pilate. All of Pilate's words that are about to come, all of his thoughts, all of his actions, his entire life, he is about to live his life in accordance with the reality that he sees, in accordance with the kingdoms of this world. What about you? What about me? Do we see the unseen kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of peace that's breaking in? Even even now, Christ's kingdom of peace is breaking in to bring peace into our lives as we stand amidst the seemingly powerful kingdoms of this world. Do we live in accordance with the kingdoms that we see or do we walk by faith and not by sight? Live in accordance with the unseen kingdom of Christ no matter what things look like. My favorite biblical example of someone who did this is Daniel, the Old Testament prophet. Daniel was captured as a young boy taken to Babylon. He lives his entire life underneath the Babylonian rule and then underneath the Persian rule. He's a prisoner in a foreign country of the greatest powers known on the planet. And Daniel wasn't shaken for a second. He stands in the face of these powerful kingdoms unshaken because he stands on the foundation of a kingdom that's not shakable. He he says it himself. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Daniel says this, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms of the world and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And he lived his life in line with that reality. He believed that there was a coming kingdom, God's kingdom, a coming kingdom of peace. And it broke in to his present and gave him the power to stand, even amidst the seemingly powerful kingdoms of the world. And he wasn't shaken. Shades, because of Christ, this coming kingdom of peace, it breaks into our lives now in an even greater way than it broke into the prophet Daniel's. I think 
I think that this is the final thing that John wants us to see. He's shown us the unseen king, and he's shown us the unseen kingdom. It leads us to the third and final thing. See the unseen reality. We've got a king and a kingdom, and that creates a reality in w- that we live in light of. John wants us to see that. See the unseen reality. Look at verses 38 to 40. After Pilate had said this, what is truth? He went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, or in this context a better word would be an insurrectionist political revolutionary. He wanted to see Rome overthrown. Pilate has asked the question, what is truth? And now, I think in these verses, the answer is unfolding right before his eyes. What is truth? What is ultimately true? What is, what is true reality? I think it's unfolding before his eyes. The unseen reality of the unseen king and his unseen kingdom is being put on display right here for all to see and believe. How? Pilate? Pilate right here makes a last-ditch effort to release Jesus in his mind. He knows Jesus is innocent, and they've got this custom at Passover that he'll release one prisoner back to the people. But the religious leaders have obviously come prepared for this because they call for somebody else. When Pilate makes this offer, they call for a well-known prisoner known as Barabbas. Bar is the Hebrew word for son. Abba, I'm willing to bet that most of you know what that Hebrew word means. It means father. Barabba, Barabbas, literally means son of a father. And this son of a father, Barabbas, was guilty. Not just a robber, like I told you. He's he's guilty of the thing they're accusing Jesus of. They're accusing him of being a political insurrectionist. That's what Barabbas is actually guilty of. Like If you go read Mark chapter 15 and verse 7, we learn that during an insurrection, Barabbas killed somebody. He's, He's a murderer who has opposed Rome. So get the irony here. The religious leaders call for the release of a man who has murdered in resistance against Rome so that they might condemn a man and murder him with the help of Rome. They want to see Barabbas, the son of a father, free so that they might condemn Jesus the son of the father, as guilty. John is trying to help us see the unseen reality, to see what is truth. Jesus substituting himself. We're getting a preview picture of what's about to happen at the cross. Jesus substituting himself for the guilty so that they may go free. This is what he's done for you. This is what he's done for me. We are Barabbas. All sons or daughters 
of a father and the son of the father has come, gone to the cross. Christ took our place of condemnation. Our king was crucified for us, died, buried, and rose again so that his kingdom of peace might break into our lives even now in the present. How does it do that? Right now through faith in the crucified Christ, we have peace with God. Christ has gone to the cross as guilty in our place so that we go free. We have peace with God. We are citizens of God's kingdom now. His kingdom of peace is breaking into our lives now. And so we can stand just like Daniel did. We can stand in the face of any of, of whoever may look like a king in this world. We see the unseen king who's really sovereign over all things. We can, we can stand amidst the seemingly powerful kingdoms of this world because we are citizens of an unseen kingdom of peace that will come in full when Christ comes again. And because of his cross, it's already breaking in. We can stand no matter what it looks like like is true, no matter what looks like reality, for we see the unseen reality of Christ our King and His kingdom. He is the truth that defines our lives so that we won't be deceived by our eyes. We walk by faith, not by sight. We see Him as King over every other king that claims to be king. We see His kingdom as the kingdom that's coming and will establish its reign forever. We walk by faith, not by... How? How are we going to do this? How are we going to live our lives in accordance with this unseen reality? When all the kingdoms of this world press in against us, when all the powers and kings of this world press in against us, how are we going to think in accordance with the truth? Jesus is king and his kingdom's coming. How are we going to speak in accordance with the truth? Jesus is king and his kingdom is coming. How are we going to live in accordance with the truth? Jesus is king and his kingdom is coming. How do we do that? By seeing everything through the lens of His Word. His Spirit, yes, Robert, empowers us to live that out. But we see everything through, we have to see all of reality through the lens of His Word. That's what Jesus said in verse 37. Go back up to it. Everyone who is of the truth, everyone who, is, who knows what's really true, who knows who the true king is and what his true kingdom is all about. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. How are we going to see Christ as king when everything around us makes the opposite look true? Only by seeing everything through the lens of his word. How, how are we going to see Christ's kingdom as the one that will be victorious when it looks like all other kingdoms are winning? Only by seeing everything through the lens of his Word, I, I'm nearsighted. Okay, right now at this moment, the reality that I see is that none of you have eyes or noses. You're all just blobs. And it's only through these lenses that I can see what's really real. It's only through the lens of His Word. How are you, at the moment where it looks like all the world is more powerful than Christ, how are you going to root yourself in the truth that it's at that precise point that He is ruling and reigning? You're going to look at the world through John 18. 
You're going to look at this where it looks like the world is more powerful than Jesus, and I can see. I can see the truth. This is all happening to fulfill the word of Jesus. So I can walk right now by faith and not by sight. His kingdom of peace is breaking in to my own heart and life right now. I have faith in him. I'm at peace with God, and I can stand firm on this foundation that no matter what comes my way, nothing, nothing, not even death, can separate me from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus my Lord. We're going to see it through the lens of this world. We can only see the unseen reality when we look through the lens of the word, when we fix our minds upon that unseen reality. Christ is king and his kingdom of peace. We fix our eyes upon it through the word. We're instructed to do this by the word over and over again. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says that we are a people who look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, Here one moment, gone the next, changing all the time. But the things that are unseen are eternal, true reality, deeper reality. Colossians 3 and verse 2 commands us, set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Set your mind on the things above. Live in accordance with that reality that Christ rules and reigns, that he governs. Don't live as if whoever is in office is ruling and reigning? Don't be shaken every time an election rolls around. That's not what Christians do. We have confidence in a king who rules over all other kings. Try to scare me with an election. We don't freak out when one nation falls and another power rises. All of these kingdoms are temporary and will be shattered by the coming kingdom of peace that is the kingdom of God that will last forever. Live in light of that. I set my mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the... You've probably heard this phrase tossed around before that people can be too heavenly minded that they're not of any earthly good. That is false. You can only be of earthly good if you are heavenly minded. If you have your mind set on what is ultimately true and real. John, our author of this gospel, he writes the entire book of Revelation, which may seem as confusing as all get out to most of us, but here's the basic point. He writes to churches that are suffering and being persecuted, and he says, I know the reality around you that you see. You're being persecuted, and it looks like Rome is in power, and you are It looks like it feels like your king isn't coming, and his kingdom isn't winning. But in the book of Revelation, John says, let me pull the curtain back on heaven for just a second. Let me direct your eyes, fix your eyes on the unseen reality that is Christ, the lion and the lamb. He is the sovereign great I am. It's the point of the entire book of Revelation. He's in control and he's coming. He rules and I don't care what it looks like. This is the unseen reality. This is the reality that you live in in light of shades. See the unseen reality. See what Pilate didn't see. What is truth? This is the truth that Christ is king and his kingdom of peace is coming. See that and live, shades. Live in light of that reality. See everything through that lens by seeing all things through the word of Christ so that we are a people. Let's be a people who walk by faith and not by sight.